Thank you, Tom. And I just have to say, Tom Holmes, thank you for always conceding and playing the U2 version of Willie Guthrie's Jesus Christ with a Bamerin flair at the end of Easter. It's a highlight for me at Easter. Isn't that, that song. It's an, it's an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation. Yes, it is. And it's a fabulous one. It's the best version on the planet. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I had a lot of fun with you all and a whole lot of others on Easter. And um, for the season of Lent, we went through Matthew 8 and 9. And there were a few chunks of Matthew 9 we didn't hit. Uh, so I know that we made it through Philippians 1, 2, and 3 few months ago, uh, and we're still going to return to Philippians 4 and finish that. But for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some texts in Matthew 9 and dip into probably Matthew 11. Um, and then, uh, if I can have the next slide, what date is it? May 28th is our summer kickoff. So mark your calendars. We're going to celebrate right here on May 28th. Um, our summer kickoffs, so our graduates, those moving up uh, to different grade levels, and uh, that will be a kickoff for our uh, five weeks through Philippians 4 before we move on to something else the rest of the summer. Um, also, uh, summer kickoff, we're going to have a party afterwards like we always do, another potluck party, but it won't be here. It, uh, last year, our summer kickoff party was at the home of Brian and Stacy Kaplan, and we're going to do it at their house again. They have a pool and we're gonna celebrate baptisms. Brian's over there being, really? My house? Yeah, your, your wife said yes. Uh, so um, if there is anyone interested in being baptized, if you have a child who might be interested in being baptized, please see me. I would love to talk to them about baptism, why we do it, why we celebrate this sacred act of going underwater and coming back up to show our identity with Christ buried and risen because he is risen and we get to uh, join Jesus on this journey of dying and rising the cross and resurrection. Uh, so that's uh, May 28th. Uh, I don't have a slide for this but just thought of it and want to make sure you all know so if you're in town you can make it. Uh, next Sunday uh, we are going to spend some time uh, with uh, Phil and Mindy Steiner and their children. Uh, they will be moving to Mexico the next day. So a week from tomorrow, they head to Mexico. So uh, we're gonna get to uh, share from them. We'll still be in Matthew 9. I'll teach from Matthew 9, but we'll spend some focused special time uh, hearing from them about this journey and praying for them. So uh, please come next week so we can have a, a special time with the Steiners. Um, so if you'll turn to Matthew 9, if you want to follow along, and while you turn there, I will say a word of prayer. God, I'm so grateful to get to be a part of this community and the privilege to get to open this book and once again look at the life of Jesus. God among us. Lord, we're grateful for your presence here this morning. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts and minds to all that you have for us this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So I want to remind you of where we've been leading up to this point in Matthew 9. Uh, so Jesus, 
Matthew 5, 6, and 7 uh, gives this lengthy teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And when he's done with this teaching, it says he came down from the mountain and the people were in awe because he taught as one with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. And so uh, this, this text shows us that Jesus is one who teaches with authority. And then he comes down off the mountain and the first person he meets is a leper. And he reaches out and touches the leper. Now, this is absolutely profound because uh, the Old Testament law said this about lepers. It did not say Matthew 9. It said this. Uh, now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean, he shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean. I think he's unclean. What do you think? Uh, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so this is absolutely profound that a leper first has the courage to walk among the crowds and come to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal him. And what's even more shocking is that Jesus reaches out and touches the leper, the one who, according to the Torah, has been told, you must stay outside the camp, has the courage to come from the outskirts in to meet Jesus. And Jesus shocks everyone and touches him and then says, be clean. And so Jesus shows that he has authority over disease by healing. And we learned that all of us, every one of us, we're all lepers, aren't we? We all are in desperate need of the healing touch and word of Jesus. And then from there, a Roman centurion comes to Jesus. And so we go from the, that which is supposed to be outside the camp, that which is at the bottom of the barrel, to one of the most powerful people in the world at that day, a Roman centurion, one who commands a hundred soldiers, one who is in charge. And he comes to Jesus begging Jesus for help to heal his servant. And Jesus just speaks the word and, and this Roman centurion servant is healed. And so we see Jesus meet with that which is an outcast as a leper. And then in his own society, this Roman centurion would have been despised by Jesus' fellow Jews. And Jesus shows this is what it looks like to love your enemy. You love them well. And this enemy of the Jewish people, a Roman centurion, when he comes to Jesus, Jesus speaks kindly with him and grants his request. And then uh, at one point, Jesus tells his disciples to get in the boat, and they get in the boat, and Jesus falls asleep in the boat, and this big storm comes up, and, and his disciples say, Jesus, save us, we're going to die. And Jesus calls them little faiths. You of little faith, why do you doubt? And Jesus calms the storm. So now Jesus moves from showing he has authority in teaching, he has authority in healing. He, he shows us he has authority over the natural elements, over creation itself. And then, uh, what's the next story? Uh, these friends bring a man who is paralyzed to Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says to this man is, your sins are forgiven. 
doesn't heal him right away. He says, your sins are forgiven, showing that Jesus also has authority over sin. And we see as authority over the spiritual realm when he heals two men possessed by demons. And so over and over again, what Matthew is showing us, he's showing us these stories that Jesus is one who carries authority over all things. And Jesus always uses his authority for good. He always uses it for good. Never abuses his authority, never abuses his power, always uses it for good. And so there was this local guy in the Galilee who had been observing these things, probably had heard Jesus teach, had seen Jesus heal, knew about Jesus. But this local guy, he was a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, worked for the Roman state, so despised by his own people. And Jesus walks by this guy's booth one day and says, follow me. And I want to pick up there. We, we looked at this passage, but it moves into a passage we didn't look at. And so we're going to start there, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. The word there literally is resurrection. It's the same word used for he is risen of Jesus. This is a resurrection moment for Matthew. His life is completely changed from this moment up on. He got up from the tax collector's booth and followed Jesus. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So the first thing Matthew does when he becomes a disciple of Jesus is he throws a party for all his friends, those who were considered sinners, those who were also tax collectors, those who are the outcasts. And Jesus is hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners and having a party, and the Pharisees show up. Like, this just seems odd, doesn't it? He's at Matthew's house. I don't know if he was outside in a courtyard, but the Pharisees just show up and say, why are you doing this? Uh, so we talked about that. Then the passage we're going to talk about today. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, before we talk about that, I want to look at verse 18, because right after this passage, it says, While he was saying this, still at this party at Matthew's house, a synagogue le leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put her hand on her and she will live. So I just want to highlight just for a moment, that three times during this party, the party got interrupted by other people coming in to get Jesus' attention. Now, I don't know what that says to you, but something it seems to say to me is that when we follow Jesus, our lives just might get interrupted by things that may feel inconvenient to us, that may even feel rude to us. I mean, imagine you're Matthew. You just decided to follow Jesus, and you want to throw a party for your friends and say, hey, I'm following this guy. You should meet him. You should get to know him. And then the ultra-religious people show up and start throwing around accusations. And then after that, uh, this other guy, John the Baptist, who is in prison, by the way, Herod Antipas has put John in prison, so John's followers are kind of 
wandering around. They can visit John in prison, it seems, but they don't, they don't have their rabbi with them. Uh, and, and some of John's uh, disciples had followed Jesus. Uh, I think we have that text next. The next day, John, referring to John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So some of John's disciples have left John to follow Jesus. Others, it seems, have stayed with John. And so they, they now show up at this party. And they say, why do we and the Pharisees fast a lot? And you and your disciples don't fast. And the Pharisees and John's disciples look very pious and very religious. And Jesus and his disciples look just like party animals. And so they're, they're, I don't think John's disciples have an accusatory question. It's a confused question. It's what, how is it? Why? Can explain to it. We, our rabbi's in prison. We, we see you. We know what John said about you. So just help us understand what's going on here. Uh, like, aren't you supposed to regularly fast? And, and yet, you guys don't do it. Uh, and then this uh, synagogue ruler shows up and interrupts the party. And, and so it's just interesting to me that this party keeps getting interrupted by different groups of people wanting Jesus' attention. Uh, there's something about Jesus that for some is absolutely infuriating and for others is absolutely captivating. I hope this morning that you are captivated by this Jesus who came to shake things up, and who apparently loves to have a good party. And so at this party, John's disciples show up, and they say, how is this? How is it that you fast, uh, that we fast, and your followers do not? Uh, and Jesus was not against fasting, it seems, because he had just given this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. If I can have the next slide, he says, when you fast, so not if you fast, but when you fast. It, it seems it's expected that there will be seasons, there will be times when you do fast to pray and, and to discern uh, whatever it may be, that there are, there are reasons to fast, and it's a good, healthy discipline in a healthy rhythm. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And, and so Jesus seems to encourage fasting. But in this scene, John's disciples have noticed that Jesus and his followers don't fast. They, they would prefer to eat and drink and have a good time together. So uh, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. 
And so Jesus uses this metaphor, this picture that's used all through the scriptures of God as a bridegroom, as God as a husband, and his followers, his children, uh, Israel and the church being the guests or the bride. Uh, and so Jesus evokes this image. And, and this uh, could be really disruptive for the hearers because in the Hebrew scriptures, whenever God is referred to uh, as a husband or a bridegroom, it's always referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so Jesus is now referring to himself that way. This could be absolutely disturbing to those hearing this. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're, you're taking that metaphor only used of God and putting it on yourself? Uh, and so Jesus is saying, hey, the bridegroom here, me, why fast? The party's on. I've arrived. The, the long exile is over. God, the bridegroom, has come amongst us to woo his people back to God. Uh, so Jesus said, why would you fast? When I leave, then they'll fast. And so there's all kinds of uh, different ideas around what this means, because clearly uh, Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father, and then sent his spirit. He says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So we know God is present with us. He's within us. He's all around us. God is here amongst us. And yet the physical presence of Jesus has left, and he has sent the presence of his spirit amongst us. And so uh, most people tend to believe this is what Jesus is getting at, that while his physical presence was here on earth, there's no need to fast. He's right here amongst us. And as we long and wait for his return, there are times when we fast. But Jesus's point is that something new is happening. He has come to do something new. And it feels confusing to some. It feels disruptive to some. It feels infuriating to some. Some feel threatened by the very presence of Jesus and the new thing he is doing. And he talks about this new thing with two other pictures. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. And so he uses these great images of if you don't shrink a piece of cloth to patch another one, it's going to cause the other one to rip worse. And if you put new wine into old wineskins, it could cause them to burst. It'd be like having a highly carbonated beverage and shaking it up and then opening it. Like Jesus says, if you, if you wanna try to stuff me into the old system, it's just gonna explode. Jesus here is not denying the need or the goodness for the old system. He is saying, however, that I have come to do a new thing within the old. 
It's like this idea of transcend and include. Uh, Jesus is always pointing us to something more. There was a teacher who was kind of confused by what Jesus was doing. His name was Nicodemus. And he came to Jesus at night because he didn't want his colleagues to know he was seeking out Jesus. And uh, he starts having this dialogue with Jesus. So, what are you doing? What's going on here? And Jesus says to him, unless you are born again, you can't inherit the kingdom. And Nicodemus is like, how can, how can I be born again? How can I re-enter my mother's womb? This is impossible. Uh, it, Jesus is getting at this idea. I mean, we in, in church world often use this, uh, this idea of born again as like a one-time conversion. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. That, that you may have a conversion experience, a come to Jesus moment, but Jesus is always inviting us to more. Jesus is always inviting us to be born again, again, and again. To always move beyond and recognize that the kingdom landscape is so much bigger, so much beyond us, so massively huge beyond the universe that we can't even begin to imagine the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Jesus comes within an old system and says, I, I don't want to blow it up. I don't want to destroy it. I affirm the goodness of it. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets, but he's taking it further to the next thing. And he invites us to enter in more deeply with him for our minds and our hearts to continually to grow and mature and be transformed in ways beyond what we could ever imagine, that we would enter into greater intimacy with the bridegroom than we could ever imagine. Uh, we do this devotional with our kids every night, and uh, last night happened to read this passage in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, unless you remain in me. Uh, you won't bear any fruit. And we had just happened that day to spend the whole day at uh, Preston Vineyards in Sonoma and walking through the vineyards and the kids could run around and play. And I mean, what a great free day. You just go to this farm and vineyard and the kids run and play. And so I got to talk to the kids. Remember being at the vineyard and looking at, at the vines and the new growth that's starting to come out? And you remember we were looking at some of the branches and how they had pruned and cut away the stuff that wasn't producing fruit? It was such a beautiful image because we had just been there to talk with our children about and what this picture that Jesus is using to talk to us about and to say, remain in me. Jesus has all these wonderful pictures in Matthew 9, it's bridegroom. And in uh, John 15, it's a vine. Because, because the best we can do to try to understand God are metaphors and pictures. Because God is so beyond what we could imagine. But this God who is so beyond what we can imagine is always inviting us into more. To experience the God of the universe more. To be, remain rooted and grounded in the vine that's Christ. What does it look like for us to experience this new thing Jesus is doing? Uh, forgiveness of sins was always around. 
God was always about forgiving sins, but there was this whole process and, and system you had to go through in the temple to, to uh, kind of affirm that this was happening. And, and Jesus comes, and this paralyzed man, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And of course the religious leaders were confused and upset and even angry. Like, how can you say that? He hasn't given the proper sacrifice at the temple. How can you say that? Jesus, I'm doing a new thing. Uh, the prophets talked about this. Uh, the ancient prophets talked about this. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah was foretelling the day when the Messiah would come. He said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. There's the metaphor. This is Yahweh speaking. I was a husband to them. And now Jesus arrives on the scene and says, I'm the husband. I'm the bridegroom, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Uh, this Jesus is doing a new thing. He is bringing the new covenant. He is forgiving sins by his life and his work on the cross and the power of his resurrection. Jesus comes to do a new thing. Jesus didn't come to create a new religion. Jesus didn't come to create some new religious system. Jesus came to bring about a whole new creation. He, he invites us into this new thing he is doing. He wants to make us new and he wants to renew, restore, and redeem all of creation. This is the expansive work of the cross and the resurrection. The leper was required to be outside, outside the town, on the outskirts. The most sacred place in all of Israel was in the city of Jerusalem in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Only once a year. This is the most sacred place. A place a leper could never go. Lepers relegated to the outside, to be alone, to live alone, to not come near. So what does Jesus do when he dies on the cross? The author of Hebrews tells us that the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place. That's the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, as a sin offering. But the bodies of these uh, animals are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Where does he do this? Not in the most holy place, not in the holy of holies, not in the inner sanctuary. He does it outside the camp. 
that which was declared unclean, that which was outside, is now holy. Because Jesus made it holy. And that is where he died. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. This, my friends, is the hope we live with. That the God of the universe came and didn't set up an earthly kingdom and set himself up as king, did not come and set him up, himself up as high priest to go into the inner sanctuary of a physical temple. This is the king of the universe, the high priest of the universe, who chose to die outside the camp so everyone outside could be invited in. We're all invited into this party. We're all invited into this new thing Jesus is doing. And the text says, go to him outside the camp. Jesus says, uh, wherever you see the least of these, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. Uh, Perhaps the invitation for us is we've been invited to the party and we get to invite others. As disruptive as it might feel for the party to get interrupted, we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus going outside the camp and inviting those in who haven't experienced the party. Uh, And we're not looking for a city that's here now. We're, we're longing and waiting for the city that will come down from heaven with Christ when he returns. Uh, when we partake of this bread and this cup, this beautiful picture of Christ's body and his blood, we, we remember that Christ died. We also long and hope for this city that's going to come. Jesus says, do this until I come. When we come forward and partake of the body and blood, when we take this bread and dip it in this cup, we reenact the Christ event. We say yes once again as a community. As we come forward, we all say yes. We're in this together. We will walk the way of the cross. We will walk the way of resurrection together. We also do it until he comes because this is, this is just a microcosm of the great party and feast to come. So this morning, I want to invite you to come and take this bread and dip it in this cup and remember Jesus, who died outside the camp, to invite us all into the party. Uh, How is Jesus inviting you into something deeper and more transcendent? than you've ever experienced before? How is Jesus inviting you into the new thing he is doing amongst us? And also, how is Jesus inviting you to invite others into the new thing he is doing amongst us? God, we're grateful for the life and teachings of Jesus. We're incredibly grateful, Jesus, that you came among us. that you always meet us where we are.
that you go to the outskirts, you go to the outside to always include and invite in. We're so grateful for the power of the cross and the resurrection, and we long with great hope for the party to come. God, as we partake of the bread and the cup this morning, give us new eyes to see and new ears to hear what you are doing, what you are saying. God, give us a fresh infilling of your spirit to be the people you've called us to be beyond these walls. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.